Hello and welcome to this interview special episode of Tech EU podcast. I am your host, Andre Degeler. In today's episode, I wanted to play you an interview that Robin Wouters, our editor, recorded a few weeks ago with Jonathan Satchel, the chief executive at Learning Technologies Group, or LTG. The company is not the most famous one, although it has been around for almost a decade already, actively acquiring ad tech organizations across the world. The latest acquisition was that of Bridge, which is a US based platform that LTG paid 36 million pounds for. So this is not your usual tech company, but a very interesting one to learn more about. So in the interview, Robin and Jonathan talk about scaling of acquired companies, developing the right culture across them, interacting with founders, and so much more. Hey, this is Robin Wouters from Tech.eu, and I'm joined here today by Jonathan Satchel, uh, remotely, of course, uh, from the UK. But he is the CEO of a very interesting company that I didn't know a lot about. It's called Learning Technologies Group. Uh, they've made eight acquisitions in the last 12 months, and somehow they completely flew under my radar. So I'm going to fix that right now with Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon, Robin. Thank you for having me. Can you give us a, a bit of a primer on what Learning Technologies Group, or LTG, actually is? Yes, indeed. So we're a London-listed uh, learning technologies business, as it, as it sort of says on the name, on, on, on the tin, as it were. We are focused on adults in the workplace and their their development. So whether it's the learning that they need to acquire the knowledge and skills to do their job, or indeed the tracking of their performance through the organization and throughout their careers. So we, we cover both sides of that performance management spectrum, if you like. Great. And what's the background of the company? When was it founded and why was it founded? Sure. So I actually bought a, a acquired with our chairman a, um, a, a privately owned custom e-learning content business down in Brighton in the UK back in 2008. It was a market leader called Epic, um, and that made custom e-learning content packages for large corporates and government. So if they had a particular learning that they needed to convey to their staff, so British Airways for cabin crew training or Jaguar Land Rover for how they trained salespeople to sell a particular new model of car, then clearly that had to be created from scratch. It wasn't available to them off the shelf. And we would work with the client to create those sorts of learning programs. So it's very much a project-based business. It wasn't a, a software SaaS recurring revenue business at all. We bought that in 2008. We turned it around. It was going through some hard times. Um, it started growing really nicely again. And in 2012-13, we were beginning to be approached by quite a lot of private equity who were saying, we think there's a consolidation opportunity in the learning market, and we see you as a potential foundation stone for that. We agreed with their hypothesis, but we didn't necessarily want to finance that, that in, in our route in that way. And we decided to go the other alternative, which, of course, is the public markets. So we reversed into a cash shell in late 2013 um, and came onto the AIM market. We were a tiddler. We were you know, a one and a half million pounds EBIT business at the time, about eight million pounds of revenue uh, and less than 100 people. And we made it very clear from the beginning that our intent was to use the market to help us finance acquisitions and grow really quite solidly and quickly. And frankly, that's what we've done. You mentioned the eight acquisitions in the last 12 months, which you're quite right about. But actually, that um, that belies the fact that we've done 16 acquisitions in seven years. So the pace has certainly increased in the last 12 months. And I'm sure that's partially COVID-related. But we have really been on a, a major acquisition trail over, over the last seven years and have built quite a substantial business that is predominantly software now. So although we still have our, our roots and our heartland, is, if you like, uh, of custom content, and we bought three businesses to add to that, our mainstay is is in software, SaaS, SaaS software delivery for learning management, talent management, and lots of ancillary services around that. 
right? You mentioned the way that you actually went to the public market, to the stock exchange, was also quite extraordinary. It's, it's sort of a predecessor to the, the specs that we sort of uh, see all around us now, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? Yes. I mean, of course, it's, they're getting a lot of hype at the moment. But yes, we did. We sought out a cash shell. And we did that particularly because we knew that uh, my, my chairman and I own half the business each. We knew that we would dilute down necessarily over a period of acquisitions because we, we would have to raise capital. And we, we believed that we could be on quite an interesting journey. And we didn't want to, therefore, do a traditional IPO and take out 30% of the value of the business on day one. So we did a, a reverse into a cash shell. And and that was the very reason we did it. But of course, with re- greater respect, we did that with a, a, a nice clean cash shell that had, had a, a failed business inside it that had been disposed of and it had a listing and £750,000 worth of cash and totally clean balance sheet. So we, we, we had a very nice receptacle to reverse into and there was a very small amount of dilution or, or uh, value attributed to the shell. So I think on day one, we owned 92% of the business, not quite the way a SPAC would work these days, as we know. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely true. So if I understand correctly, the, the intention was always to be uh, sort of in the business of acquiring other businesses to grow uh, rather than organically. But what was the reasoning behind that? And and did you have like a already type of company in mind that you would you you would acquire over time yes indeed so so the reason was was pretty simple to be honest we we genuinely thought that this was a an area of the industry that was crying out for consolidation there wasn't a dominant player particularly if you look across the custom content segment of the industry there are a lot of small what i characterize as mom and pop type shops you know five ten million euros pounds revenue that uh, don't really scale uh, very well and we thought there was a good opportunity to to create a um, a, a dominant force uh, by combining some of those. And then, to be honest, we knew we would get into the software side of the the industry. We see the uh, the learning industry as being characterised by three segments: custom content, generic content, and software and platforms. And we knew we would enter the software and platform side of the industry, and we wanted to because, of course, the recurring revenue is very attractive from a, a financial stability perspective. But I have to say the emphasis that we found on buying particularly American software companies has surprised me. I didn't anticipate that at the beginning of the journey. But yes, we, we always, always knew that we were going to be uh, highly acquisitive. What I would say to you, though, is that we do that alongside some really strong fundamentals and financial discipline. We are very focused on delivering sensible organic growth, but not at any cost. Um, We are also exceptionally margin focused, and I'm proud of the earnings growth in the business, uh, particularly earnings per share growth over the last six years. If you look pre-COVID year, where we were flat year on year last year, but up to the end of 2019, in that six-year period, we had uh, compound annual growth of around about 48% for our earnings per share. So even though we were issuing quite a lot of stock to make these acquisitions, we were spending that money efficiently and wisely in in terms of the, the businesses that were being acquired and the profitability that we were ultimately deriving from them. So we're pretty pleased with the way that went. And so our, our, our fundamental principles are run the business very soundly and very financially responsibly, make sure it's profitable, cash generative, and then the whole acquisition machine alongside that just just causes stellar growth. And um, you know, we've frankly I've been I've been surprised by how much has been achieved. I've got a very talented team around me. We're very lucky. Yeah. You mentioned something that I took away from what you just said was that most of the businesses you acquired uh, are not scaling well, or at least not without the the help of LTG. Uh, what what is why is that? 
So I wouldn't say necessarily the smaller custom content businesses just seem to hit this sort of ceiling where they're, they're owner managed. And I think that normally you find that the leaders of that type of business are a practitioner in good learning um, and learning interactions, which of course is an excellent skill, one that I certainly don't possess and I respect immensely. But that I think means that whilst they build a, a group of people around them and they can grow the business to a certain size, we all know that you get to that point where you've got to make a step change in management structure and infrastructure. And I think often these businesses are run as lifestyle businesses and, and the owners, founders choose not to do that. So there's, a, there's an inherent limitation on growth. We could see, certainly back in sort of 14, 15, that the, the, the noise in the market was very much that global corporates and, and large government were saying, we need, we're, we're going to become more demanding. We want things done faster, uh, into many languages, deployed quickly out to our learners. And unless we are dealing with an organization that's got the size and scale and, and, uh, and also the flexibility of, of, of flexing up in terms of the workforce to be able to meet those needs, we're going to be disappointed. So we felt that creating a, a large capability in the custom content space was a good idea. But as I say, you know, when to think that at the end of 2015, that was 100% of our business. We were an entirely custom content project revenue-based business with no recurring revenue. And as of early 2016, we started acquiring software companies. And now 80% of our revenue is derived from software revenue. Yeah, um, so on one to multi-year contracts. So you know, it is a, an unrecognizable business today from five years ago. Yeah, you're a proper uh, software business now. Uh, we are indeed. And um, <laughs> do you find it difficult to integrate uh, those companies within the larger group in terms of culture, for example? Because I recognize that some of the business that you buy might not, you know, have the same mindset of, you know, growth and and, and scaling. Absolutely, of course. And you're quite right. I mean, we've we've learned a lot over this this period. Um, when we first, our first acquisition was a London-based similar business to, to our own Epic. And when we merged that together, we made loads of mistakes and almost had to redo the merger by by creating a new culture. But we, we managed that and that was in the first couple of years. From 2016, I made a very conscious effort that as we were starting to buy business in America, we would not impose the LTG-esque culture onto them because I thought we would be resoundingly unsuccessful in doing that. And also we need to be very respectful. We, we all know how British companies fail when they travel across the pond and try to acquire and, and manage businesses in the US. I made a few devout rules after taking lots of advice. One was always to run those businesses with US leadership and also was, on the culture point was not to try and change them, allow them to flourish in the way that they are. So what we decided to do was create five core values, uh, values that we knew were inoffensive to everyone that they could all sign up to about accountability, customer focus, trust, respect, and so on. You know, really, really good basic fundamental values and then allow local cultures to flourish. And what we've done over time, and, and uh, we were roughly um, modeling ourselves on, on Martin Sorrell's um, WPP model at the time. Um, you know, we created a, a federation, a sisterhood of like-minded businesses that work together um, very well indeed. Uh, but we allow them where they are genuinely different and individual in terms of their go-to-market strategy or indeed what they provide. They stay as a separate operating business. We only combine businesses where they have complementary software or similar customer sets or similar go-to-market. And then we actually bring them together as one operating unit. So we are uh, we are rationalizing the group as we go in terms of um, bringing acquisitions in and combining them with others. But we do allow those individual cultures to still flourish where it's appropriate. Okay, makes sense. Um, the latest acquisition that you've uh, made or at least announced uh, was a 
also a learning and talent development uh, software provider from the US called Bridge. Yep. Uh, the amount was $15 million. Is that the typical size and target market that you're after? Meaning American companies are about that size. Sure. It, it, it's certainly one of it. I, I, I think it's very difficult to, to for us to typify exactly what we look for. The size range, um, our largest acquisition was $150 million. People flew into the summer of 18. And our smallest acquisition has been a few hundred thousand dollars just to bring a piece of clever tech in. Um, okay. So we are we are pretty broad minded about what we look for. And we would also consider acquisitions at, at considerably higher value than $150 million. Yes, it is fair to say all our software acquisitions have been in North America. And that happens to be more mostly our hunting ground, although not exclusively. And I think perhaps one other thing to characterize for you that, that really is quite unusual and often gives us the uh, people turn around and say we're a bit like a private equity house in a public company wrapper. We're prepared to do two different styles of acquisitions, probably more, but those they characterize what we've done so far. One is the fast-growing founder-owner-managed business, where they're at a, an early or medium stage of their growth. Perhaps they're not yet very profitable, but they're certainly beyond minimum viable product stage. They've started to build a customer base. You can see genuine foundation stones of momentum there. We've been particularly successful at having um, advisors help us spot those and sometimes spotting them ourselves and then evangelizing to the founders and, and convincing them that being part of the group will assist them in their on their growth journey. And we just structure the deal in a pretty simple way whereby we pay a sensible initial consideration, but then a very generous earnout predicated entirely on revenue growth not on profit. We know that we can deliver the margins. We're comfortable about, uh, confident about that. But we, we want the founders to be liberated so they focus on growth. And we've done this about six or seven times. And in five or six times, it's been phenomenally successful. And we've paid out, in most cases, a maximum earnout over three years, sometimes part of the earnout. But, you know, we've got those founders mostly all, all with us. Only one that didn't grow did we lose the management team. And, and that would I would consider to be not such a, a successful um, acquisition. Um, but all the others have worked really well. And then on the other side of the coin, we have been willing to um, engage what I would call mature software companies with challenges. So these are not founder or owner managed. They're, they're very much sort of um, executive management businesses that aren't necessarily delivering on, on their expectations. And we look for characteristics whereby it's a solid product, possibly underinvested in, that needs some some work, um, a solid customer base. That's something that we really expect. And probably an out-of-kilter go-to-market strategy, maybe also out-of-kilter cost base. And we've done that twice. The economic value on the way in is very attractive because we we normally pay, you know, circa one times or, or, or at most two times revenue. And we eke out uh, considerable efficiencies by plugging those businesses into the LTG backbone, taking across some common services that we can do more efficiently for that business, and then returning it to a focus on growth and customer service and, of course, reinvesting in innovation in the product. And uh, that's worked well for us. And they're, they're a very efficient way to scale up. So PeopleFluent is the best example. That was a hundred-ish million dollar revenue business making a 10% EBIT margin. We paid $150 million for it. So right in that metric that I described. And within a year, we announced that was making us a 40% EBIT margin. Now, they are never going to be the fastest growing businesses because it, you know that would be the most phenomenal sort of turnaround if you achieved that. The products are mature, but they have some very sticky customers who need the complexity and configurability of those products. And we have modernized those products over time and improved customer retention. And they are 
a very good uh, foundation stone and, 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 and bedrock of the overall business because if you've got the very solid cash generation qualities of those businesses sitting underneath the faster growing, potentially happily lower margin businesses, then the combination works very well for us. Yeah, great. Thanks for the clarification. Um, something I probably should have asked in the beginning, but how big is the group in terms of staff and what is the rough geographical spread of the, the team? Sure. So we, uh, with Bridge, we actually, we just burst through a, a, an important milestone of being over a thousand staff. I probably couldn't give you the exact number, but I'd say we're circa 105, a thousand and fifty people. We are predominantly North, North America. So I, I, around about 550, 600 colleagues there. Uh, maybe, maybe actually 500, um, about 300 colleagues in, in the UK and a couple of hundred colleagues based in Australia and, and elsewhere. We have inherited with two acquisitions, two offshore development centers or an offshore and a nearshore development center, one in India and one in Hungary with our latest acquisition of Bridge. So, um, our footprint is, is pretty wide and, and, and varied. We also now have been developing quite a hub in Bogota in, in Colombia for a, a, an open source software business that we've been building out in the last 12 months called OpenLMS. Interesting. What would you say is going to be the strategy going forward? Are you going to continue to focus on the US or do you see opportunities in places like Southeast Asia, maybe parts of Europe uh, still? Yes. So, I mean, Europe is, a, is, is both a, a frustration and a, um, an excitement to me in almost equal measure. Um, uh, I, I find it very difficult to, to, to build out the right strategy for boots on the ground to actually develop that market. Obviously, it's a lot of separate markets. So we do an awful lot of uh, our sales into Europe, European clients at the moment out of our UK base, which clearly is okay, but not, not necessarily the optimum. We do have a, a, a German-based uh, situation, and we've got some customer success staff there and, and a salesperson. Um, but I see us developing that over time. And indeed, some of the recent acquisitions we've made have more European customers. There's an even greater justification to do that. I'm candidly, I'm nervous of Southeast Asia or you know Asia in general. I, I think the the culture. And, and the ability to do business there is something you've got to be very used to and you've got to have extremely good local expertise. We don't have that at the moment and it's not a, it's not a focus of ours to go and acquire that. If we happen to buy a larger international business that has that already well established presence there, then we would lock into it and, and enjoy that benefit. But we're not, we're not seeking that at the moment. Yeah. Um, and frankly, you know, although we are now, if you look at our sort of run rate revenues where we're getting into you know the the one one hundred and eighty two to two hundred million pounds range of revenue, so we're not a we're not a small business anymore, but I can be very clear with you that we still are only scratching the surface of that surface of our North American opportunity. Um, we think that the growth potential for revenue over there is very substantial indeed right well, I'd say not a small business by any means uh, at this point. <laughs> Let's tackle uh, two big topics. Uh, one, of course, you mentioned already in passing, uh, which is COVID-19. How has it affected your business and how do you think it will have a lasting change on your, on your organization? Sure. Do you know what? I will forever be thankful to uh, um, a very stringent uh, director of IT who um, caused me about a year before COVID to um, not allow people who were working from home occasionally to use their own home machines because he was concerned about IT security. 
and it therefore caused us to invest very substantially in a, a replacement program of about 600 laptops that we made sure almost every member of staff had one. That meant that we slid into COVID very elegantly indeed. And um, we had one or two challenges like everybody did, but frankly, we were extremely fortunate. So by by mid to late March, we were working efficiently, completely remotely. So I was I was thankful for that. We were better prepared than perhaps we would have been. Uh, we've monitored productivity very carefully. We're seeing no diminishing of that um, across the piece. There is definitely some mental well-being that we need to be aware of, as I, as I imagine in every company there is. Um, you know, frustration where people would like to at least spend more time in the office alongside colleagues. But I don't think we will ever return to that sort of everybody in the office all the time type model. We weren't really that, to be honest, beforehand. We were a bit of both. But we have now overtly expressed to staff that um, we will we will take a much more welcoming view of, of flexible working going forward. And it's actually having an effect on us thinking about our real estate footprint. And we're beginning to think about capacities required for offices. So as our leases are rolling out, you know, rolling up for renewal, um, we're taking a view on what space we need in those locations. Yeah, of course. So um, I think yeah. it's I think it's really it's really interesting. The other side of that question, of course, is what has COVID done to our market? Um, and you know, we are, you know, I'm almost ashamed to say because I appreciate the the, the terrible situation that an awful lot of organizations and people have found themselves in from the pandemic but we have been a direct beneficiary we have seen a lot of trends being accelerated and the, the thing that's astonishing is corporates even in you know a year ago's age of us being much more digital today than we were five years ago let's say they still did astonishingly about half of their training of staff in some form of not necessarily classroom setting but a facilitated setting where there was an expert teaching a group of people and i i find that that stat amazing clearly that has been very very significantly affected by the, the pandemic at first we we noticed that most of our customers were pivoting and panicking to just do a zoom call with the instructor in front of a load of people on screen you know april may june that happened and then they were saying to us we're finding it's not being very effective and we said look this is where you need to to create a true blended learning approach where of course the expert and the facilitator matters but you need to allow people time for self-study at their own pace on their own device and you need to design that in conjunction with the facilitated session that's why we call it blended learning uh, the industry is is right behind all of this by the way we're not unique and um, that has worked incredibly well and we now have got the most unbelievable, very large corporations um, who are coming to us and saying, will you please redesign our learning academy and take it away from being predominantly face-to-face to being uh, blended learning? And, and that's that's giving us some great opportunities. Interesting. Well, it's been a boon for a lot of tech companies, so I don't think you need to apologize. It's been <laughs> you know, quite, quite an accelerating uh, phenomenon, I would say. The other um, topic that I wanted to address is the B word, uh, Brexit. How has it... in if at all, uh, affected your uh, your business. Again, I, I I think I should feel somewhat guilty. Of course, we don't move physical goods around, so uh, we're we're not suffering any of the uh, the the difficulties that uh, organisations that do that are. Um, uh, we we were we we sort of put ourselves a bit of a contingency plan in place because none of us obviously knew until right at the last moment what was going to happen. So we were comfortable. We had an entity, a legal entity in, in Germany that gave us a, a, a foothold if we needed to, to be able to provide services into the European market. If we weren't able to do that from here, um, we obviously are able to. So that hasn't had to be enacted. Um, and I suppose our biggest preparation actually was just data security and where we, where we hosted things. So we've made sure that we have a European base again, Germany 
AWS data center um, that we can provide all our services to our European clients from um, alongside the UK center and our others around the world. So um, we, we position ourselves in a, in a situation where we felt we had the flexibility uh, that would be required depending on, on what uh, direction uh, the whole Brexit situation went in. So candidly, it's been it's pretty, been pretty benign for us so far, but I expect that after, over time we will find we will have to have to adjust and and base more of our um, situation in in Europe to, to to meet the growing demand. Yeah, and have you not seen an effect in terms of uh, being able to attract talent or or retain talent because of Brexit? No, uh, candidly, I haven't. I mean, we, the the job market for us is is pretty interesting at the best of times because we develop in in um, in languages that. Uh, you know, are pretty pretty much in demand. So engineers are not the good quality engineers are not the easiest people to find, and um, and so we are. You know, we have I don't know, something like forty or fifty open roles in the business at the moment. Of course, there's the flexibility of people who now are remote working. So I, I suppose if I think about it, we probably have taken on more European-based staff in the last three or four months than than, than perhaps we we have done in in the past. Yeah. Um, not sure whether that's a direct. Uh, I, I can't see why that's a direct effect of Brexit. Actually, I think it's just a sort of byproduct of us all all being more willing to have staff that are based remotely. Yeah, and do you find for talent that you compete with, uh, you know, the startups and the digital scale-ups uh, in in the UK and beyond that you know grab the headlines? Um, yes, I don't. I don't think it, it, that's sort of overt and known. I just know that it's it, the, the market out there is is competitive. I like it when we're hiring talent that's very specific to the needs of our industry because we are an acknowledged market leader um, and we have i think strong appeal to all different stratas of people in their careers so um, early early career um, people are really keen to have ltg on their cv um, they know they'll get a very good grounding with us and have lots of opportunity to, to grow and develop we're a big advocate of internal promotion so we, we, we attract um, many early early stage career people in, into the organization, which is great. But also senior people know the brand. They, they know what we've achieved. Um, we're certainly the fastest growing company in our industry by a country mile. So um, that, that, that has enabled us to attract some really good talent within our sector. The moment you broaden that out to developers of Java developers or whatever, you know, where it's, of course, uh, uh, you're competing with all other types of tech company, then at that point, we have no particular advantage. Do you keep a close track of um, sort of the, the early stage startup and innovation ecosystems in Europe? Um, probably not as much as I should, Robin, to be honest. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's only so much I can do. I'm, I'm keeping a track of a lot of businesses that we think are going to be in, are going to become interesting to us, which are mostly early stage businesses and just watching whether they get to those sort of minimum criteria that we have for, you know, the number of customers that have been attracted to their minimum viable products and all that sort of thing. So, um, we keep a, tr a track on those and we, and we've got a reasonably sophisticated way of doing that. I would confess I'm not uh, across the other tech industries in, in any way at all. Um, I've just I've just actually invested personally in a um, in an education technology and edu tech uh, innovation fund, and I did it partly because I wanted to get more exposure. We are not focused at all on on children's education, but I think there's some really interesting technologies bubbling up there that I think will inform my thinking going forward. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Um, you've been very acquisitive, as we've discussed uh, already uh, earlier in the conversation. Does that also paint a target on your own back? Would you see uh, <laughs> LTG being acquired at some point, or are you too big? 
I, oh, well, I, I, I think it's arrogant to think one ever gets too big. I do think that rating, you know, public company rating has a has a factor in this because when you're acquiring businesses, I know that it's very it's an important factor for me, pricing discipline, valuation discipline. And so I'm sure that's applied to us too. I've had many a, a, a laugh with private equity houses who looked at this from time to time and said, there's no way we would pay a 30% premium on on top of your current market cap to take you private because you know your 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 multiple is too high your rating's too too great now of course i'm thrilled that investors feel good about us and confident about us and give us that rating so i think it's a bit of a double edged sword and we're certainly not building the business with a sort of little flagpole alongside us saying come and have a look you know we're for sale absolutely not i mean it's you know, far from it where our strategy is very much about how can we just become a market a global market leader in this industry what do we need to add um to to our portfolio to to get us there so um i have to say we're, we're sort of really focused on our own journey who knows what might happen in the future but i i don't think about it maybe as a final question uh, as a business leader who sort of transformed uh, a company uh once or twice uh, in the past gone through all of these acquisitions uh scaled the company up to more than a thousand staff if you would Give one piece of advice to aspiring founders or, or, or existing startup founders. What would it be? Am I allowed two or one and a half? You're um, allowed uh, as many as you want. <laughs> okay. Well, the first one, which which is just irrefutable, no one can ever, ever make a mistake if they do this, is focus on the basics and the fundamentals. No one has ever gone wrong if you just, of course, care for the customer, make sure you deliver what you say you're going to do, and actually also focus on the financials. And and that would be my, that my uh, second point. I am... A little skeptical about these companies that these days, you know, the whole funding model, the VC funding model and so on, that that encourages companies who have got themselves to a minimal stage to go out and try and boil the ocean, grab the earth, go and do this big land grab of customers and at any cost. Uh, and they go and burn an awful lot of cash in doing so. I've never seen a management team be unsuccessful in spending the money and hire lots of people. They are always super successful at that. But we all know that occasionally there's absolutely stunning stellar successes from this. But almost all of them end up in something that is between mediocrity and okay. And that 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 is something I think that culturally makes things very difficult for these organizations. If they actually just try to take a, a slower but more measured cost-based approach to to growth and really thought about the combination of retained customers that you, you acquired the year before and how, what the value is of those and how much you should be spending on retaining those compared to what you should spend on acquiring new customers and really focusing on those metrics, then I think we would end up with perhaps they grow a bit slower, but they grow a hell of a lot safer and be more sustainable ultimately. And we're certainly taking those sorts of approaches with the businesses that we own. Growth at any cost is 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 something that almost always comes home to roost and, and not necessarily in a good way. So those will be my best advice. Great. Well, that was a, a super interesting half hour uh, for me, at least. I'm, I'm guessing the audience would agree. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, all the best with LTG. Robin, thank you very much indeed. It's been great talking to you. And this is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, follow us today wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. 
Our audio engineering is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Your questions, suggestions and opinions are always very welcome. Do send them to podcast at tech.eu. We are also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and uh, in most other places except probably TikTok. This was Tech EU Podcast. I am Andrew Degler and I will talk to you again later this week. For now, take care and enjoy the rest of your week. Bye-bye.